So we did our first retail lease in, I think, you know, three months, uh, about a week ago. It was a, a new, great new, deal. New retail, right? Yeah, yeah. A new retail lease. It's a, you know, a, a, um, kind of an antique sunglasses store. And they found a great lease. They were willing to go forward with it. And we were talking to him about his finances. And as he broke it down to us, it's a small business. Um, you know, first couple of weeks, go to pay the rent. Another week and a half go, goes to pay employees product. The last three days of the month is when he makes his profit. So here's the big question. Have you ever been so financially frustrated from years of poor financial decisions only to wonder why didn't they teach me in school anything about how to manage money? I've spent the last 20 years learning the secrets to how money really works and how to use it to get financially free on a goal to retire early. I've realized how much of an impact we could have on the world by teaching financial literacy, entrepreneurship, and a successful mindset. Join me as I interview some of the world's most successful business owners, coaches, and parents to get them to share their secrets on how you can not only learn, but teach these lessons to your kids to become financially free and impact your children's financial trajectory so they can avoid the frustration and go on to do great things. I'm Cody Laughlin, and this is the Money Talkers Podcast. Welcome back to Money Talkers with Cody Laughlin. I am here with Jeff Love, who is a partner at Gibbs Giddon Attorneys at Law, which focuses on real estate transactions. His practice encompasses all facets of real estate transactions, including drafting and negotiating purchase, sale, syndication, and financing transactions in connection with commercial, industrial, and residential assets. Uh, Jeff, I want to welcome you to the show, Money Talkers. I also want to mention that you've got two young kids too, so we're going to dive into that a little bit with you on how you're handling things at home. I'm excited. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man. Well, hey, listen, uh, I guess kind of give me an idea what, so you're an attorney, but you also deal with a lot of real estate stuff. Like what, how does that mix together work for you? So I'm kind of, you know, think of me as a transactional attorney. If you have a deal, we're, we're the guys that take that deal and put it on paper and help guide you from you know, realizing it to fruition. So we do a lot of real estate transactions where it's an investor's buying or selling a property. Um, a new business may need to lease a commercial space. You have a restaurant that needs, needs space. You, you need office space. You're a fulfillment center. You're, you, know, you need distribution space. So we'll negotiate those leases to protect either the tenant or if we represent the landlord, making sure that the business terms that the two parties negotiated are actually what's reflected in the lease. We do a lot of financing work with loans. We do real estate syndications with passive investors. And we do a lot of corporate work as well. So we represent startups through middle market companies with day-to-day -day legal issues, negotiating with customers, preparing contracts, as well as eventual mergers and acquisition deals if the company is being sold or investors are either coming into a company or being bought out of a company. Man, you guys cover a lot of stuff. Um... So let me ask you something. So I, you kind of mentioned the beginning there about talking about making sure that you have your negotiations in place when you have tenant and landlord. Um, I'm curious, uh, have you walked into some situations where you brought in afterwards? <laughs> because I think a lot of people don't realize that um, it's extremely important what you put into paperwork beforehand because it needs to cover the situations that can happen on the backside. 
So oh, it, it, <laughs> it happens all the time. And that's, you know, the problem that most people don't realize is, and, and I get it, you know, from a business standpoint too, is you don't want to spend the money up front. You, know, you may not think that you need it, but it, it's always more expensive to fix the problem after the fact. And it's, it comes about in different situations. You know, you, you, there's a lot of online websites and things now like LegalZoom where you can you know, form a company. Um, the problem is it's not always one size fits all. In certain, certain circumstances, they're great and you'll save money, but we fix a lot of operating agreements because someone's formed a limited liability company or a corporation and it doesn't reflect what they needed it to. So six months, a year down the road, we'll get people coming and saying, I've got this problem, can you fix it? And the answer is usually yes, but it's more expensive and it would have been cheaper from the outset. And the same is true in real estate, you know, especially right now, because you know, we're talking in, in August and as you can imagine, there's, there's lots of commercial spaces with tenants. Yeah, I'm curious how, uh, there's probably a lot, of, probably a lot of paperwork being come through right now as far as uh, loopholes to get out, I would imagine, um, you know, exceptions to paying rent. Like, what are you seeing out there? There's a lot. And, you know, a, a lot of the commercial, at least on the commercial side, people are relying on what's called force majeure, which is a provision that basically says, if I'm not able to fulfill an obligation or do something because of an act beyond my control, an act of God, an earthquake, a fire, um, strikes, labor disputes, I'm excused from that action. So a lot of tenants are relying on that provision to say, well, there's government shutdowns. I can't access my space. The problem with most commercial leases, though, is that provision excludes financial obligations. So if your bank is open and you're able to send a wire or send a check, you're not excused from paying rent. So that's the issue a lot of tenants are facing. Landlords are relying on those provisions, but the tenants are saying, I can't operate the government, you know, the city of Los Angeles won't even let me in my space. So we're seeing other far-fetched legal arguments like the frustration of purpose is a, a decades old legal argument that says if my, if my lease, if I can't operate for the purpose intended, I have a restaurant and I can't function as a restaurant, then the contract should be void. Uh, not incredibly successful, but that's kind of what people are relying on now because you may have not thought through these provisions or really negotiated it, rightfully so. Yeah, who saw a pandemic coming, right? <laughs> no, you know, all these people never saw a pandemic. You know, they, they should have seen that. Come on. You know, but it's a far-fetched example for things that you could have seen because people yeah. don't negotiate in their lease. Do I have the right to assign my commercial lease to a new company, which you need if you're going to sell your business? If I've got a staying on the restaurant example, if I've got a restaurant with 10 locations and I, Jeff, want to sell it to Cody and I don't have that provision in my lease, I have to go get my landlord's consent. Mm. Well, if the landlord doesn't consent, it can derail my entire sale of my business, which isn't right. So it's the same time landlord wants to be protected. So it's, it's negotiating provisions like that up front in a letter of intent or when you're doing a lease and not coming to your attorney or advisor later on saying, Hey, help me. I, I, the landlord won't, won't consent. And a lot of times you can negotiate and you can yeah, figure something saying, out. Yeah, landlords will usually consent at some point, right? <laughs> they will. And you know, you throw money at them or you figure in, they want yeah. the more expense, you know, they want the bigger tenant and be financially secure and landlords are reasonable. We represent both landlords and tenants, but to your point is it's often cheaper and you can save money and it's, you know, it's good advice to think through these things before you enter into those contracts, before you enter into that business deal, 
what's your five, you know, seven, 10 year plan. And if it involves selling a business or if it involves another example, you know, putting that into a lease or put that into your negotiations ahead of time. So then you don't even have to have the discussion later on. It's already built in and, and, and done. Yeah. Um, I have found in my life that there are a few professions that I would recommend anybody really work on putting this network together if you haven't done so yet, but it's basically attorney, CPA, insurance and, and banker, right? It don't worry. Like the cost is a lot of people say, Oh, well, it's, it's expensive to use, you know, to use the best in the business. I'm like, well, then you really haven't had the, the pleasure of paying the expense on the backside of things because it's way more expensive. And so, and each one of those functions has a different uh, agenda, right? Like your banker and your attorney and your CPA don't always see together. Right. Because it's like, <clears throat> you kind of have, you know, you're, you're, you're putting up max protections, right? The banker, is like, yeah, we're going to lend, but we need to be protected and to be able to have access to you. <laughs> and then you're, you know, same thing with your CPA is like, well, I'm going to save you as much in taxes as possible. Then your banker hates that as well. So, you know, it's always kind of a good, uh, it's really, I think it's really good to develop relationships in those arenas so that you can pick the phone up, have a quick conversation and at least understand that where the liabilities are that can fall ahead of you. That's so right. And it's, you're right. They're, they're, sometimes there they are competing goals. You know, accountants, we may a lot of times not want to recommend to form the same business uh, in, in entity structure, an LLC or an S corporation, because they're my an accountant's primary motivation is, as you said, I want to save on taxes. Well, an attorney, we want the business to thrive, but we also want to limit your risk and, and liability. But having that team in place, it, it's so critical, you know, not just from a business perspective, but in real estate as well, because, you know, the first thing I tell new real estate investors is, you know, have that team in place because it's, it's, you know, it's impossible to know everything and you're going to make mistakes, but having that team in place allows you to bounce ideas and questions off of them. Have you, as you said, have your accountant, have your insurance broker, banker, you know, attorney, if you're in real estate, have a real estate broker. So you can have that team to ask questions, to bounce it off of the, the, Biggest thing I see with new real estate and business owners is just not learning from their mistakes and making it again. Yeah. And being able to learn from that mistake, not make it again, because now I've got someone to bounce the idea off of, or I, I just, I learn, I get more experienced is, is critical. And those are the businesses and, and you know, entrepreneurs that we really see thrive because you know, I, I think failure in a lot of these is inevitable. You're going to hit roadblocks. It's how you kind of bounce back from that and adjust and learn from it that you're able to not make the same mistake again and really see that venture. Yeah, and in that network, you know, I always feel like you're basically leveraging all the people that they've seen failed too, right? So like you said, like the, uh, you know, specific provisions coming up in leases, well, it may have been some weird provision from 40 years ago that you might have studied 20 years ago to check a box on a test. But if you've seen it come up to an, a, a, a client and you've had to litigate something like that, well, you're going to know it inside and out and you're going to help people that don't know what they don't know. Right. Yeah. And it's, and it, as you said, it's with clients, you know, I'm dealing with one client issue today and when that comes up again for client B tomorrow, they're getting the benefit of that because we yeah. see what works and what doesn't work. And we're going to guide, you know, all the clients from here on out into doing it the successful way because we have experience where we've seen it happen or we've seen mistakes being made. So having that advisor is going to guide you, as you said, guide you away from all the mistakes that they've seen, uh, even from different clients or different scenarios.
So when you've been on the ground right now, I'm, I want to pick your brain on what are you seeing? Like, what are you seeing with, in the commercial space um, with, uh, and you guys work uh, mostly West Coast, right? The West Coast of the United States. We do primarily West Coast. We do do deals throughout the country, um, okay. but S Southern California, West Coast is where we see the majority of our work. So what are you seeing on the ground right now with between in commercial real estate? It's, uh, it's wild out there to put it bluntly. I mean, there are certain asset classes like industrial that are weathering the storm better than others, which as you can imagine people shopping online with fulfillment distribution type centers, they need industrial space. So, you know, those tenants, those landlords are doing, you know, doing better, but let's take office space and it's very difficult because we're getting many professional service firms in you know Los Angeles and really throughout the state and really the country that are thinking we don't we're not using our office we're not really allowed to use it if we are maybe we don't want to go up to our high rise and be close to everyone and go in an elevator up 20 stories but those firms you know my firm my, myself included are thinking you know maybe we don't need as much space you know we've seen work from home and Maybe it's not full-time work from home, but maybe it's two days from home. And the other partners work two days from home. So it's more of a kind of a hoteling arrangement where we can share offices. And for office landlords and office space in general, that's going to have dramatic effects because as much office space may not be needed. In the west side of Los Angeles now, there's, there's over 5 million square feet of space listed, which is a huge number. Yeah. Um, I wonder because like, you know, you hear the talking heads on, on the TV shows and they're talking about like, oh, people are working from home. They might not leave, need much space. And sometimes they're, they have a disconnect. And so that's why I asked, like, are you actually having, are people really having those conversations of pulling back on the office space? And so you're kind of confirming that. It is. And the ones that are, you know, staying it. And I'm missing, I don't think office space goes away completely. You know, I think people need it. It's just, do you need it to the same extent? Do you need that 10,000 square foot office for your, your big accounting or law firm, or can you make do in, in six? Um, the leases that we've done are more, let's, let's extend for short periods of time. Let's do a six month extension. Let's see if we can go month to month because people really are concerned. Our price is really going to start coming down because there's this glut of office space and that leads to a downward trajectory in price. So they don't want to lock themselves in to three, five, you know, seven, 10 year leases. Cause yeah, they, I didn't think about that even just if they weren't going to use the office space, but actually in the renegotiation portion of it, if you got 5 million square feet of open space, somebody's going to cut a deal. Right. And so that's kind of what you're, <laughs> someone's cutting a deal. We may not need need as much space. So let's play it out and let's be flexible. So we are seeing, you know, kind of the, the WeWorks bridge office spacing. That's, you know, very flexible actually hasn't been doing as badly, even though, you know, you think you're sharing, it's that is being offset by the flexibility. So you're, you're closer in proximity, but it's flexible. So they're, they're, those have been going, you know, all right. And it's kind of wait and see. It's, you know, it's, it's other asset classes as well. You know, we're talking about office space, but think about retail space where, you know, is your neighborhood, you know, small restaurant or nail salon, um, barbershop, is that going to make it? if there's continued shutdowns and they're not able to operate for another six months, I've got a, you know, a yoga studio. Nobody wants to go do yoga in person. So they're doing it all virtual and doing, thankfully doing well with these virtual type zoom classes, but do they need that retail space? 
um, they want it and they want to keep it, but are they able to survive and pay? And if they can't, if that business goes under, what does that do for that retail landlord? So office and retail are two, I think, one of the sectors that, that are struggling um, with what the future looks like. Have you done a lot with your clients with doing like the PPP stuff? We've done a fair amount. Um, yeah. And that has been kind of a, a godsend for some of the businesses to help them pay their employees, help them pay rent to get through this period of time. The concern that we have and that I've addressed with certain clients is once that money dries up, you know, what happens then? We have a lot of you know landlord clients and they've been able to get rent because of PPP money. But once that goes away, is that tenant really actually able to make the payments if they're not open and operating? Or are we going to see a wave of evictions, foreclosures, you know, six months, 12 months down the road? Yeah, I, uh, I'm of the opinion that if you have a PPP loan right now, I would not file for forgiveness. I think they're going to wipe everything under whatever, 100,000, 200,000. I think they're going to make a line in the sand. I don't think there's any way in, in the world that they can underwrite, you know, uh, however many millions of loans there are. I just don't think the SBA can do it. So people have been asking me, I've been telling them to just wait it out because you don't have to file for that till technically now till the end of the year, right? And so I've been telling everybody, I'm like, dude, if you got 30 grand, just sit tight because I think they're just going to wipe it off the face because I, I just don't see logistically how they can even possibly underwrite 2 million loans or 20 million loans, whatever it is. I don't think the SBA is going to have any of that capability to have the bandwidth to do it and term determine the forgiveness. No, you know, as you've kind of maybe read and seen that they're auditing the big loans, but yeah. for, for these millions of small loans, it's going to be interesting what they, you know, what, what they do for it. And, you know, I just, I'm, I'm thankful that some of the, our business clients have been able to get it because it, it has yeah. helped whether, yeah. you know, even if you ha ended up having to pay it back, which wasn't the intent, but you know, it was money at the right time when you really needed it and was able to buy you an extra couple months. So out here in LA, at least, you know, restaurants are still, you know, they're not open, but you're able to kind of do delivery takeout and you're able to operate outside. Yeah. So there are a couple months window where you really weren't doing anything. And that those proceeds helped a lot of our clients get through that time. So, what's really, what's really scary for me is that I was a commercial banker and I, like I said, I've, I've opened, you know, 13 businesses and I have lots of entrepreneur friends. And uh, what's scary for me is like a lot of the small businesses in the world, people don't realize that they're, they're dollar in dollar out. A lot of times, you know, these guys aren't, they're not rich. Like they're, they're, they're actually, you know, uh, probably making less money than they, than they could as, as an employee somewhere, but they want to chase that dream and build a business and they have an asset. And I just, I'm just, so concerned that they're like, Oh, we'll just keep lending money to them. And I'm like, you're stacking money on someone who was on the brink during the best economy that we've seen in a lifetime. You're going to stack debt on them because they don't have any money. You know, and that's kind of scary to me. Like I don't, that's the part where, you know, I've had some very deep conversations regarding like, you know, where we're going to end up after this thing, because I, you know, I talk about a lot of restaurant owners. There's usually not a lot of reserves built into restaurants because they're just, no. you know, the cash flow is coming. And it's usually a, a two week, maybe, you know, backlog of cash that they keep there. But these guys, I mean, they got to reopen, which means they got to restock everything, bring the employees in and train and make sure they're there and all that stuff. And it's, it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting experiment of what happens here shortly, you know, to that example, to give the listeners an example, I, you know, so we did our first retail lease in I think, you know, three months 
uh, about a week ago. It was a, a new, great new, deal. New retail, right? Yeah, yeah. A, a new retail lease. It's a you know a, a, um, kind of an antique sunglasses store, and they found a great lease. They're willing to go forward with it. And we we're talking to him about his finances, and as he broke it down, to us, small business. Um, you know, first couple of weeks go to pay the rent. Another week and a half go, goes to pay employees product. The last three days of the month is when he makes his profit. Um, if he's successful in operating and has full full customers coming in, so that kind of shows you the kind of one example of what's the breakdown of all these expenses and costs. And yeah, this little window to make profit if everything is going well and customers are coming in the door and people are buying it. But one thing goes wrong or you're not able to operate or you don't have as many customers. Well, now those three days have just gone out the window and you, you don't have a profit a month. That's just, yeah. I mean, just even thinking about that, just three out of 30 or what, 10% roughly, like that's, he's still running a good business if he's keeping 10%, right? And so that's most people like... You know, you often are margins of a couple points on the bottom line, and it's like, man, I just don't, I don't know. I, I think it's great what they did to be able to make that accessible to most people because we didn't know how long the timeline was. But uh, it's going to be, I, I think there's going to be some some fireworks here on the back half of the year with letting those things just be forgiven. And, you know, uh, now that we've had more time to debate everything, that they're there there's some pretty strong cases going out there for every piece of it and i don't know where we're gonna go right i agree with you <laughs> so um well listen i want to shift gears here um i want to talk to you about something because you guys deal so much in real estate and uh um i really want to understand like you you i know that you put together syndication so could you explain what that is a syndication is is think about it as a passive investment You've got someone familiar in real estate. You, you may hear the word sponsor, operator. They, they know real estate. They're in the field. They may say, I've got this great multifamily property. It costs a couple million dollars. I don't have the money to be able to put the down payment and to actually acquire the property myself. So I'm going to go out to various real estate investors, entrepreneurs, people with some disposable income and say, will you invest in my company? just as if you were to invest in equities, you know, buying Apple or Microsoft, you're investing in, you know, a, a company, an LLC or a partnership and buying a piece of this real estate. So what, what that sponsor is doing is he's syndicating the real estate investment to these investors and hence the term syndication. What it really is, it, it's, it's you're forming a company and bringing on investors to acquire a piece of real estate and your investors are passive. You're not involved in the day-to-day -day business and you're receiving you know, a portion of the appreciation and the cash flow from that real estate asset that's being run and managed by the sponsor. So um, are these, I mean, are there pools that people are going to or are there, uh, are these known investors or what do you normally see as a, as in a way to acquire the investors to come into the syndication? There are all different types of ways. It may be, you may be a small syndicator and you have a group where you start where it's family and friends. And as you grow and get more experienced, you may have other contacts that you're able to reach out to uh, or re referrals. Um, the last few years, we've seen a huge increase in crowdfunding where there are websites um, that actually sponsors can put their project on these websites and that's vetted. And investors will go to these websites and look at, you know, 50 different projects from 50 different sponsors and be able to invest 
through a crowdfunding website into this into these projects. So that that's really expanded the reach of sponsors to reach different investors in different states, expand their network. The SEC recently, if you have accredited investors, which is certain parameters the Securities and Exchange Commission has put on investors to make sure that they are financially savvy and secure because they want to make sure they understand these investments. But to certain accredited investors, sponsors are actually able to advertise. So you can see lately we, you know, we've had clients advertising on Facebook and other social media platforms to be able to, uh, you know, I've seen them actually on Instagram and things like that, where you're, you're, there are these investments where, you know, you can go and look into it if you're interested and contact a sponsor and become an investor. So all different types of ways which you are actually able to reach these investors and get your project funded um, and acquired. Yeah, that's really interesting because it's almost like, um, you know, you've got the power uh, of the dollars, you know, that's where a lot of times like you, you deals get killed because you don't have enough liquidity. And that's a, it sounds like a really good way to put together enough liquidity to do larger deals. I know right now in the in the commercial space, as far as multifamily, I, I don't know what it's due to, if it's just an excess of people feeling the stock market's great or whatever, but like the numbers on multifamily properties right now are just, the cap rates are just crazy. You know, that's what I'm seeing here locally anyway. They, you know, it, it, they are. I think it depends on the market too. You know, Southern California is a tougher market and you know, here, it's not as you know higher than they were. We have other kind of competing factors, new rent control laws, and worries about tenants paying rent. But multifamily is one of those assets that I, I think people are interested in, yeah. and it, it is a viable opportunity. You know, people wanting to get out of them, or you know, worried about wanting to get in equities or put their money under their mattress. But we are seeing a lot of deals, and uh, you know, bigger deals where a new investor. You know, may not be able to have the, the cash flow or the, the, the balance sheet to be able to acquire it himself, but may go out to a few investors, you know, if he's just starting up family, friends, to be able to, to buy that five unit apartment building, 10 unit apartment building. And that's how a lot of these syndicators get started is you start investing yourself and think, well, hey, that, that's a really good deal on that, that, that 10 unit property, but you know, I just don't have the finances to do it. Can I go to these investors and be able to use their capital to acquire bigger deals and be able to make more money at the same time. And those investors that may not be, know a lot about interest in real estate, they may be a doctor or a dentist and have, have disposable income and want to diversify and may not want everything in equities or in CDs and may want to invest more in real estate and are willing to put money in to be able to get you know, six, seven, eight, 9% returns on their money. Yeah, no, that's a great uh, that's a great point because you've also got you know in in uh, hopefully appreciation as well. But um, uh, what kind of asset classes are you guys seeing more activity in? Is it is it multifamily? Multifamily, I have to say, is the biggest. People yeah. are very scared of of retail, especially with syndications, because you know unless it's you know a really big fund, you may not be acquiring a big office building industrial, at least in Southern California, is a really competitive hot commodity. And multifamily really runs from you know, your single, you know, you do single family homes or going to multifamily when you have a, a duplex on up. So you're, there are a lot of price points where you're able to get in and also find niches where 
you're not at the very high end of the scale where you're competing with institutional investors and you may not be at the bottom competing with you know flippers or small-time investors you're able to find that niche that works for you and that may not be as competitive and really get those attractive cap rates in the multifamily area then uh what would be your advice for someone that was going to go into real estate investing um from i guess two ways one from just what you see in the market and then two uh as an attorney from the market we talked about earlier the the best piece of advice to give is have a team in place that you can bounce ideas off of and get advice because especially as a new investor you may not understand it all which is fine but you want to have a good accountant to make sure that you're not leaving money on the table you're taking proper deductions you want to have a good real estate broker to help you find deals and understand cap rates and why is this property at a different cap rate than one two blocks over you know is that because it has you know th there's access to amenities or is that because there's there's a big you know office building and people want to be close to work um, now having an insurance broker because forming an entity and limiting your liability protection that way is great but you also want to be able to protect yourself from an insurance standpoint to make sure that you have the proper coverage for what's what's happening on your property um, so i think having that team in place and from a legalist perspective it's really taking a bird's eye approach to what you're doing and, and what's your goal for this investment? Am I thinking of fixing and flipping? Like I see on you know, TV and HGTV, am I gonna buy this home and I, am I gonna invest in it and flip it? Well, what goes into that? And now I'm managing a contractor and I've got opportunity costs, I've got carrying costs, understanding what goes into that scenario versus I'm gonna be a long-term investor. I'm gonna buy this duplex and I'm gonna keep it for my kids and use a residential 30 year fixed financing, 30 years it's paid off and that's my kid's inheritance. Or at that time, in 20 years, I'm gonna sell it and that's gonna pay for my kid's college. Because different scenarios and different types of investment involve different structuring, different goals, different underwriting. So really thinking about what, what your goal is, what your long-term plan is, and that becomes even more important if you have a partner because different people, well, at the outset, you may think you're on the same page. I may want to retire in five years Well, my partner has a 30 year horizon. So we want to make sure that we're on the same page before we jump in to business together. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people realize the, uh, the avenues that can come up in a partnership. So, um, you know, I've had multiple over the years and it's like when we sat down to actually do like a key man type insurance and, started talking about, you know, what happens with our buy sell and then our operating agreements. And like, you have to go through quite a bit of scenarios that, um, you know, are some, you, you, you gotta leave, you gotta check the emotion at the door because they're pretty, you know, you've got to get into pretty in-depth scenarios because, you know, if it's, if my, you know, if I were to die, what does my wife take over half the company? Is she going to run this company? Is she going to be here? Does she want to, you know, like, or how do you pay her out? Cause all of a sudden, well, well the value of the company is X, Y, Z. Why do you turn the value of the company? You know, and it's like, there's so many like little rabbit holes. You kind of have to go down with partnerships like that. Um, and it's not a bad thing. It's just a thing, you know? It's something we do all the time and create buy sells, which is, you know, kind of think of it as your, your business prenup. And yeah. you go through some of the situations you just mentioned because 
if we're partners, I may not want to be in business with your wife or she may not want to be in business. Your kids may not want to do it. You may want to leave and travel the world for a year. You may die, become disabled. And we want to ensure that business is going to continue for that other partner. But we don't want to have these fights and try to value the business down the road and have disputes. And you think if you can get that done at the outset, although it's difficult and you think it's never going to happen, it really does end up protecting businesses. We've had so many over the years fall apart because you kind of are having this divorce when something happens to a partner. Um, and that, that prenup is what you need to protect it because you thought through all these issues when you have clear heads and everyone's on the same page rather than dealing with a spouse or kids or an estate, you know, that, that really doesn't, may not know anything about this business. Yeah. And you know, like we kind of what we just talked about too, a lot of times there's not enough liquidity to value half of a business, right? So you've got a million dollar business. You generally don't have $500,000 sitting in the business checking account, you know, because you're, it's based on your profitability. And so, and you can't really borrow against that very well. You know, and just say, oh, this business is worth a million. Can I have 500 grand? Bank's like, no, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's not collateral. <laughs> you and know? a lot of times you, you deal with it, you know, maybe, maybe you had a life insurance policy yeah. on one of your other partners that can pay part of it. Maybe it's a, it's a note that's paid over five years because you're right. You don't, you don't, you don't, you don't have that money and you expand that. And you, even a $10 million business and I'm buying a $5 million to buy out a partner right, right there. It's, you know, it'll, it'll, it could cripple the business. It just doesn't have the cash flow to be able to do it, but you owe the partner the money. So how is that thinking through? How is that going to be paid? And, you know, can we utilize life insurance or some other type of, of mechanism to be able to get us through that, that really life-changing event in the life cycle of this business? Yeah, until we sat down and really started talking about it. And you got to remember, if you lose, if you're both working in the business, you're not passive, you also lose that person you know, who's usually a very key creator of the business. So, um, you know, you, you not only are you having to now, okay, I've got to continue to compensate, but I don't have a person anymore who is the driver of a business, you know, a founder or whatever it was. And so it has all that intimate knowledge. And so it's an interesting conversation, um, <laughs> you know, and sure. so, uh, well, if you're listening to this and this is some of the stuff that you've never really thought about, uh, Jeff, where's a, where's a good way to connect with you? Um, and to see what you guys are doing or if this is something that resonates and people need to have a conversation. Sure. Always happy to talk to people, you know, check out my website at gibbsgiddin.com. My email is jlove at gibbsgiddin.com. And I'm also on social media. LinkedIn has a bunch of references and articles and things we posted as well. Awesome, man. Well, listen, thank you very much for being with the money talkers audience today and, uh, and, and sharing some of the, the uh, real world on the ground experiences that are going on right now. So we appreciate you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Money Talkers with me, your host, Cody Laughlin. If you found this episode helpful in your pursuit of financial dominance, it really helps if you make sure to leave a five-star rating and share it with your friends or family members who could use good financial information and entrepreneurial success tips. I invite you to join the Money Talkers community Facebook group. Open Facebook and search for Money Talkers to join today. Follow us on Instagram at the Money Talkers for inspirational mindset posts, encouragement, and investing tips. And remember, the one thing you can do to change your kid's financial future is to start talking about money with them because you are a money talker.